The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from my home in sunny Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I thought we'd travel around the world, figuratively, of course, since like you, all of the Breaking Views team are confined to their homes, doing their best to help flatten the curve on the spread of the coronavirus. That means we had something like three dozen bureaus around the world to choose from. But I thought given the extraordinary decision taken by Prime Minister Narendra Modi to lock down India's 1.3 billion people, we'd be better off starting with Yuna Galani in Mumbai. After that, we will travel to our Lower East Side of Manhattan Bureau to check in with our U.S. editor, John Foley, to hear how things are playing out in the center of the outbreak in the United States, which is a little bit behind where we are here in Europe. Finally, we'll head to Milan to speak with Lisa Yuka to hear how Italy is coping with the social shutdown, as well as the economic fallout. Remember, Italy is a few weeks ahead of much of Western Europe and certainly the United States in dealing with this horrific tragedy. So, dear passenger, please fasten your seatbelts and stow away your belongings. We're heading to Bombay. Greetings, Yuna. Coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. How are things in Mumbai, India, under lockdown? Well, we are well and truly into a lockdown here, and it's happened really, really fast. We've only got about, we've only had about 10 deaths from COVID-19 so far here, but in the last day or so, uh, we now have almost every state in the country is under a full or partial lockdown. We have no international flights, no domestic flights, no trains, state borders, district borders have all been sealed. I mean, everything is shut except for essential services. And if you go outside and you don't have a good reason to go outside, you risk a jail term. So, you know, for a big, noisy, unruly country, and, you know, it's it's very eerie and quiet at the moment. I'm trying to think of like any country where here in Zurich, Switzerland, where people follow the rules and the rules are very well marked and everybody's relatively prosperous, affluent, that kind of thing, even here. You know, there were some question whether you'd get young people and folks like, you know, younger people to stop congregating. But I just can't even imagine the the scale of the task for a country like India with, you know, whatever it is, 60 different official languages, one point whatever billion people. Unruly is the word you used. It's also the word you used in your insight column this week. Are people following orders? I have been surprised at how much people are following orders. I mean, obviously, everything that is true is not true at the same time. So you'll always find an example of where people are not following the orders. But I think overall, people are taking it quite seriously. And I think that here, Modi's popular appeal is probably this great help at this time. India doesn't have the same authoritarian system as China. And China was able to lock down very, very quickly and efficiently eventually. But Modi, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is the most popular leader India has had in decades. And he's actually acting pretty fast. He's doing a really good job in communicating the gravity of the situation. And some people have, you know, compared Prime Minister Narendra Modi to President Donald Trump in the past. And I find that comparison at this moment to be particularly off. Because Modi, just like Donald Trump, is comforting the people with his calm demeanor and his scientific approach. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, it's it's something like that. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, they, India was quite quick to close down internet or stop international flights. If I'm not mistaken, that was sort of the first thing they did quite quick, quickly. But in terms of actual movement within the country and really shutting down the economy, and we'll get to the economy, you know, you've written quite a bit about the need for the economy even before this to see a big juice. It doesn't, I mean, I understand that now it's happened, but shouldn't they have been a bit quicker in making sure internal movement had slowed? Yeah, they could have been. I mean, one of the big challenges in India is that as much as 30% of the workforce here is domestic migrant labor. And that's very poor daily wage earners in the informal sector who don't have contracts. And as businesses started to sort of shutter, they were suddenly without work. And they have made a big rush to go back from the cities to their rural villages. And there were huge queues at the train station over the weekend. That was before the trains closed. And I think that sort of is a real visible indicator to you of the financial stress that India is going to come under. It's one thing to ask people to stay at home for a couple of days, but a lot of people in India don't have big savings buffers and they can't afford to be out of work. So no, the it's thing, a super poor country. I mean, it's a super know. poor country. So, so the thing that really needs to happen fast in India is that we need to see cash handouts. And I think it will happen fast, but it's really critical to social stability and it will really help the containment effort. Yeah, you wrote about in your piece on Monday about how they have this ability to basically put cash into the into bank accounts of, of you know 600 million or whatever it is bank accounts overnight even for a poor country with limited infrastructure given its size they do have this financial infrastructure have they yet come up with a fiscal plan to do so I think the fiscal plan is going to come um, it hasn't really I think the first priority for the for India has been to sort of communicate the gravity of the necessity to stay at home but the next step has to be the fiscal plan and I think India really doesn't have much fiscal space I mean one of the reasons it's been so important to lock down quickly is because even before this crisis the economy was on its knees and the authorities were stepping in to rescue the troubled banks we just had the state and private-led rescue of yes bank and we had a corporate bad debt problem. And now that bad debt problem is going to extend into the retail sector. Retail borrowers, ordinary borrowers are going to be squeezed. Household credit to GDP has zoomed up in the last couple of years, even against an environment of no investment, no weak job creation. So there is going to be a, a big problem if they if they don't do something soon. And and the fiscal space is limited. The you know, fiscal deficit to GDP is what, three and a half percent? Right. I think, I mean, I think that they do have resources if they want to dig deep. I think it's conceivable that they ask the Reserve Bank of India to pay out an extraordinary dividend, and maybe that gets paid to the government, and then maybe that government, the government then pays that into the bank accounts of ordinary people using this technology you spoke of, you know, this unique yeah. biometric identity system, which covers, you know, some people thought it was Orwellian, but now it looks great, right? You have this mechanism to put money real time into bank accounts of people who most need it. Well, it's going to be, yeah, this will be the proof of that, of the efficacy of that decision against, as you say, the issues around identity and, and freedom and that kind of thing. What, When you look at the economy, I mean, you had been writing a bit about how Modi really did need to get economic growth up. I think it was looking at three to four, five percent growth. But that isn't enough given the number of people out of work. And, you know, the, the, you need to have something like six, seven percent growth rates in India just to, to kind of get people out of the poverty line. What concern do you have about 
that, I mean, that's going to be very difficult to do. We're probably, you know, most of the world is probably looking at some sort of recession. What is the impact either on Modi or on stability in India as a result of, of a real decline in growth? So I think it's important to put this shock into perspective. India had, if you remember, a really big shock a few years ago. Modi suddenly banned all the large banknotes in the country. And this is a cash-driven economy. 96% of the economy runs on cash. And when he did that, that rippled hard and fast through the informal sector, through the economy. And after that, the government rolled out a very, very disruptive tax reform, an important reform. They rolled out the goods and services tax. So India's economy and its people have really endured multiple shocks and reforms over the last few years, which gives you some confidence they will find a way to manage. But it is a little bit scary to think of, you know, the types of job creation that problems that will emerge as a result of this. And I don't know, I mean, you look at the experience poor countries have had in past pandemics or epidemics, you know, Sierra Leone, I think it was in 2015, they had the Ebola outbreak and their GDP in one year, it was a 20% decline on their GDP in a single mm-hmm. year. The World Bank figures suggested that it wiped out five years worth of economic development. And that's just a devastating amount for a country that's in an early stage of wealth creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, and, and then as you mentioned, some of the other initiatives, whether it was privatizations like Air India or fixing the bad debt problem, fixing the, the banking crisis, the sort of, you know, those non-bank financial crisis, and then also trying to reform banking systems so that, you know, allow for bailouts and that kind of thing. All of that's got to be basically pushed aside. Yeah, and I think that, you know, now they're going to have to, like every country in the world, they're going to have to be relaxed about the way banks record their bad loans. And Modi has, for the last four or five years, been trying to get banks to clean up the way they do business, been trying to throw errant tycoons in jail. And, you know, they have been making real progress on this front. So this is going to be a bit of a step back. But there are other reforms in that India has done in terms of tackling the bad debt question that will stick. There has been a bankruptcy reform. That's not going to disappear. That's not going to go away. Tycoons will still be able to lose their businesses. So that's something. Yeah. All right. Well, look, Yuna Galani in Mumbai, stay inside. Stay healthy and keep your spirits up. And uh, we'll look forward to reading more of your stuff from India. How's how's New York? I miss it there very much. Is it uh, weird to be completely confined to your apartment? Well, I have to say, Rob, it's a bit different from the New York you remember. Um, I'm currently based in East Manhattan. And anyone who lives in New York is used to the sound of sirens emergency services vehicles but the weird thing is that now that's all you hear there's nothing else just sirens no traffic no people drunk people coming out of bars traffic uh definitely no drunk people or certainly not coming out of bars um and the and the noise this kind of soundtrack of ambulances is being reflected in in some pretty scary numbers that we're seeing reported uh not even just daily the numbers are going up each day we're getting numerous reports of the escalating death toll in New York and also the number of infections, which is now a third of the total uh, in the US. So right. one, one in three people with current, who've been tested positive for coronavirus are in New York City. That's because they're actually being tested. 
It does well, but seem even like... then, they're being tested only when they get to a certain level of seriousness, when they're in hospital, when they obviously have symptoms, when they need uh, when they need treatment. Your average person is not getting tested. They're just sheltering at home with or without coronavirus. Right. And, and what is your sense? I mean, do, do you feel like you're part of the, uh, the United States response or do you feel like you're just in the de Blasio quarter or you're in the Andrew Cuomo district? I mean, what's that feeling like? So it's interesting watching, as we have been doing, the wrangling that's going on in Congress today in particular and yesterday over the over a bailout package. And there are all these lofty ideological arguments about whether you should tie, uh, you know, tie help to, for example, asking airlines to reduce their emissions or getting companies to stop doing stock buybacks. I've got to say that feels a very, very long way away from what we're seeing here in New York, where literally hospitals are being swamped. Uh, there is a shortage of ventilators at the moment. Uh, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, says that we are going to need, I think, the number that he gave is 30,000, and I think they have 7,000. So whether or not companies pay buybacks or whether their CEOs get golden parachutes seems a little bit less relevant. But it is, of course, extremely important. And it's important also because what's happening in New York is going to spread to other cities, as Cuomo said today. We are the, we are the peak, if you like. We are riding the upswing of the curve. But this is coming to cities everywhere. No, you are so, that you're like the Italy of the North American continent. And yeah, we are. And like even California, which which was was vying for that role. I mean, they they acted quite decisively and quite quickly. New York is so densely packed. Um, and now I was looking at the numbers today. Today, one in six hundred New Yorkers has New York City residents has coronavirus. And just two yeah, days no, ago, that was one in no. eight hundred. Yeah, and that's that's just that we know of. Those numbers are, are going to be much, they're imperfect, all these numbers. I mean, it is it is difficult. Now, just going back to the finance and business part of it, it is, it, I'm sure it does seem relatively abstract to be worrying about, you know, bailouts and what, uh, how bailouts are constructed. Of course, it seems reasonable, though, after what we went through in the last time that you attach some sort of conditions. I know it's really easy to say, oh, my God, we're, you know, the economy's falling apart. We've got to act now, now, now. But I mean, doesn't it seem reasonable to at least ask for some strings to be attached if you're going to give money to businesses? I think that there is a really strong case for doing it. I think if you want to help address this crisis without laying the ground for the next crisis, then you want to make things a bit conditional. I do think, though, and this is a debate that we've been having here in New York, that the financial crisis showed that, however imperfectly, you can fight the fire that is blazing now and then deal with some of the underlying causes later. So in the financial crisis, we made sure that most institutions didn't fail. Um, and then afterwards, you had the long, laborious task of preparing the Dodd-Frank um, legislation that, that addressed some of those causes. And, and, and it, was, it wasn't perfect, Dodd-Frank. It took a long time. It required bipartisan support, which is very hard to come by now. But it was good enough that the banks hated it. And I think after yeah. this, the time to discuss how you make airlines cleaner and what you do about stock buybacks, it's great these questions are being asked, but I think that ultimately they'll have to be asked properly when we've addressed the immediate. Well, I think that's why, that's why I'm guessing this is mainly Democrats who are asking these questions, but it seems to me that you sort of say, these are the questions we are gonna come back and discuss. Even if we, in the end, we know that there will be an inevitable sort of um, all hands bailed out a package of some sort, you put yourselves on the record of saying, you know, at some point when, when, and, and there will be that point when we're past this. 
um, where you have that conversation. I suppose that's a reasonable thing to do. I think so. They're putting down a place marker. And, and it is so important that those qu questions do happen. Because again, like with the financial crisis, you need to look back afterwards and say, how do we make sure that this never happens in the same way ever again? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, look, uh, stay uh, healthy, John. Stay uh, in your apartment. I know it's not easy listening to those sirens go by. Um, get your deliveries um, and um, be, uh, be well, my friend. Thanks, Rob. Buongiorno, Lisa. How are you coping with lockdown in Lombardy? Buongiorno. So, I mean, it's been uh, two weeks of full lockdown in Italy and almost a month if you, for Lombardy, if you include the gradual lockdown, which was introduced as of uh, uh, the end of February. And uh, I mean, it's a different word. I mean, activity has really, um, you know, grinded to almost uh, zero in terms of, uh, you know, people walking down the street. I mean, there are very, very tough fines. Uh, being imposed for people who are found out in the street, you know, either with no clear justification or, you know, uh, I mean, the only thing which is permitted really is like shopping. If you if you are maybe a doctor who's going to work at a hospital or if you're, um, you know, um, buying medicine or helping your elderly parents. I mean, this is pretty much, you know, what and, and now, now this, the only stores that are open and this is the same. Obviously, we're all going through this and all of the sort of Western European nations and most of the states in the, in this, in the United States where you're basically confined to pharmacies, groceries, uh, liquor stores, I noticed in most places are essential, including, and uh, it seems to be some weed dispensaries in certain parts of the United States. But uh, but otherwise, it's it's pretty much if you need something for your home or you need some electronics, what do you do about it? So that's quite interesting because obviously, um, as you say, I mean, we, we are to sort of the bare minimum in terms of shops that are open. But um, it is possible, of course, to still get some online delivery uh, from from some of the big chains, but also from some of the small shops. So the small shops are circulating list of, you know, with telephone numbers locally to each neighborhood to just let people know that they are available. I don't know, to bring you whatever, you know, you may need. Um, and this is kind of helpful because Amazon, for instance, here in Italy has started um, basically stopped um, delivering non-essential, some non-essential items because they really want to focus on what is what the government deems essential, which is mainly food, soaps, you know, I mean, anything which is right, kind right. of the basic. Um, and what, and, but that's for the people. I mean, I guess the other lockdown, as it were, and you've seen this ahead of some of the rest of Europe, which is a sort of slowing or even a shutting, shuttering of non-essential factories and production. What is now, that's got to be screwing up supply chains, not just in Italy, but for the rest of yes. Europe, so, the world. Indeed. So this was the, um, a third step that Italy took ahead of other European countries. And it was announced uh, on Sunday, um, the idea that all non-essential factories would be shut. So, for instance, I mean, fashion, I mean, anything which uh, is linked to the fashion supply chain uh, is considered non-essential. That's, that's a big loss for Italy. And we have companies here like Prada, Armani, I mean, many of the big names, um, because the focus wants to be really to, uh, to, to give energy to food, medical devices, but also to respond to complaints by workers and workers unions who were basically saying, 
obviously they felt unsafe. Uh, now, you are talking about supply chain. Yes, I mean, this is a big problem, not just for Italy. I mean, the, the sort of shutting down of pretty much half of its production, but also for Germany, because Italy is a big supplier, probably Europe's biggest supplier um, to Germany of stuff like, you know, machines used in the uh, auto industry or, you know, other sectors, uh, parts, car parts, but also parts used, again, in German's manufacturing industry. And it's considered high quality what is produced here in Italy. And it's not easily replaceable. I was talking to some people, I was talking also to the head of the German association here. You, you can't easily replace some of the stuff which is made here, because um, even if you wanted to check with China, first there's a quality issue, but also it may take six to eight weeks to be able well, to, to get stuff from there. You know, this. So what? how is the government dealing? I mean, you know, they've decided that the most important thing is to stop to flatten the curve. And, the, and there does seem to be the last couple of days have shown some some encouraging signs um, of, of a flattening, at least in the deaths uh, that are being reported out of Italy. But, you know, is there you know there what else? What are they doing to help workers? What are they doing? What are they saying about um, the economy in, say, three to six months time? So obviously, I mean, it's a bit difficult to assess, if you want, you know, the precise um, size of the hit that we're going to get, you know, from this coronavirus emergency. I mean, we definitely, I mean, every economist I've spoken to say we're going to be in a recession. I mean, the question is, is it going to be minus 3%, minus 5%, or even minus 10%? It's really difficult, you know, to to pin it down. what the government is doing, uh, I mean, again, you know, it's taken steps. They've been followed by other other European countries. It, it's mainly to try and support um, companies with, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of cash flow shortages that they may they may they may suffer uh, because of all these shop closures and the other shutdown, and also provide mm-hmm. income support, um, including to self-employed people. Uh, which may not fall in any other insurance employment scheme. The problem is that Italy is a high debt country. I mean, our debt is 135% of GDP. So it's not that we can easily raise the funds that are needed. We're not Germany. Germany has announced, you know, they may raise 10% of GDP uh, in, in government bonds, you know, to help fight this. If Italy does that, plus the economy contracts, we're just going to get to 150% of GDP. Really right. easily. So that, so that's, yeah, so that's, I mean, we're still waiting to hear on how all of that's going to work out, whether the, the Germans or the, they will, you'll have a, I don't know, a European budget or some sort of European wrapper or protective uh, guarantee for, for debt, right? So the latest um, discussion, and I wrote a view about this uh, uh, this morning, is to maybe allow struggling countries like Italy to access uh, special credit lines that are offered by the European Stability Mechanism, which, uh, as you may remember, is a bailout fund which was set up in the Eurozone crisis in 2012. So, you know, this could be a way to ensure that Italy and some other uh, country in difficulties, you know, can access cheap funding and they're not shut out of the market if if the situation goes out of control. Um, But, you know, it it still needs to be worked out because normally these funds are offered with certain conditions, including fiscal and budget surveillance for the country that uses the funds. And Italy certainly doesn't want that. 
no, no. And okay, before I let you go, what are you? Well, how is the, how is the Yuka family coping? What are you guys doing for fun? How do you keep your spirits up? How do you uh, exercise or or get get rid of the 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 sort of cabin fever? Well, I mean, we are kind of doing quite a lot of uh, family games. I mean, I have two young children, so they're quite keen to try and do this as much as we can. Um, obviously, a lot of uh, movie watching and, and reading. And we've also signed up to some online yoga classes that I'm doing with my daughter on a regular basis. Um, I mean, it's not great. Uh, you know, we still have a bit of a cabin fever, but at least we spend more time together than but not before. Readings of, uh, the Decameron by Boccaccio or Promessi Sposi. I am actually reading, rereading La, uh, La Peste, The Plague by ah. Camus. So, um, yes, I'm a little, you know, kind of focusing a little bit on some of those uh, interesting reads. All right. Well, well, keep up the good work, Lisa. Keep your family and yourself healthy. And we'll be back with you in a couple of days. Thank you. Bye. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Lisa Yuka, John Foley, and Yuna Galani. And hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.